This is From the Envelope of Suicides, a study of the will to die and the will to live. Episode 1, Introduction, The Envelope, in which our narrator tries to face death and things take a strange turn. I stood in my grandfather's office, and it hit me all at once that I'd come there to shut it down. I stood by his desk, and I looked at the picture that had always hung there in the same place on the wall near the back corner of the room. It had hung there for over 40 years, and I'd seen it at least once each summer my whole life, but I'd never really looked at it. Now I counted 26 tall, slick-haired chaps in white smocks and wax mustachios, smiling or smirking at the camera as they stood around him and behind him. And he stood there glaring as he looked up at the camera from the middle of the front row, himself in a white smock and his body foreshortened beneath his dark and strangely disproportionate head. This was the graduating class of 1930 of a medical school in upstate New York. It was just 12 years after he'd fled in an ox cart from the Turks and the Kurds and rode several hundred unimaginable miles through steep mountains and across arid plains to a refugee camp outside of Baghdad, where he served as an interpreter to a British officer when he was just 14, because he spoke five languages well whereas I do not. It was 1997, and now, after a career that spanned the history of modern psychiatry, all the way from the waning of phrenology to the start of the antidepressant revolution, my grandfather, who was a lean Assyrian bear of a man with the mind of a steel trap, had been forced to resign his practice at the age of 92 because of an aggressively tentacled tumor in the back of his brain. Since my life was shit, it seemed, or at least in a phase of transition that allowed for flexibility in times like these, I dropped everything, which was nothing. I quit my job, which I loathed, and I moved to Connecticut to help my grandmother take care of him and to share some of the last months of a man who was smarter and sharper than anyone else I'd ever met, who had, throughout my childhood, embodied both the alchemical power of ambition and the dangers of certitude who had sung my praises and pushed me to work harder and to be stronger, who I'd tried to emulate and who I'd often defined myself against, who believed in me and mocked me, and who I knew had always loved me. My grandmother wasn't sure she wanted me to come out there. Actually, I'm pretty sure she was pretty sure she didn't want me there. So when she met me at the airport, she met me with a wary hug 
and the start of a litany of recriminations that shook her already unsteady driving all the way through the tobacco fields of northern Connecticut. A litany of insinuations and suspicions that I was there to undermine her or to maybe try to institutionalize her, to mess things up or just get in the way. I responded with a series of diminishing denials and demurrals, and I tried to count the times we almost died as our car drifted from lane to lane to be nudged back by angry horns. And so I stared out the window, and I thought of how the tobacco of Connecticut is of an inferior grade, suitable mainly for cigar wrappers or cheap cigarette blends, and the plants themselves are grown under sheets of plastic, fields of plastic, miles and miles of plastic. And I resolved to quit smoking, and I changed my mind a couple times before we arrived at my grandparents' house just outside New Britain. My grandmother pulled her Buick sedan into the garage next to my grandfather's black Mercedes, and she slumped over her seatbelt and shamefully sobbed. I reached over, and I gently put the car in park. It had only been six months since I'd been there last, but... After flying out and staying with them at least once a year since I was four years old, after hearing year after year that this is your home, I thought as I dragged my duffel bag through the kitchen that maybe they were right. Maybe this, more than any place else, maybe this was my home. This strange, split-level, early-60s, sort of modern, ranch-style house set into the side of the tallest hill in Kensington, the town in the exact geographical center of Connecticut, on clear days, you could see Massachusetts through the floor-to-ceiling windows of the living room. Well, you could if they hadn't always kept the curtains closed to keep the sun from fading the rugs. My grandmother, who was still in her wool coat that made her seem even smaller than she was, busied herself with the mail at the kitchen table while I went to take a quick shower. She said to me, Don't get too comfortable. I lugged my duffel bag down the squared spiral stairs and through the big downstairs living room that was intended for entertaining but hadn't seen much use since the late 60s when my grandparents hosted semi-regular cocktail parties. My grandfather had described these parties to my brother Jacob and me as smashing successes, casual galas that formed the heart of the local medical community. I was convinced this was true when my brother and I discovered in one of the cabinets behind the bar an ancient unopened pack of novelty cocktail napkins that featured a cartoon martini glass with googly olive eyes who told slightly off-color quips about blondes, legs, and his bitter shrew of a wife. My room would be the guest room, which was just off the entertaining room, and shared a short hall with the bathroom and the laundry room. The laundry room smelled like spray starch and had shelves and shelves of scores of jars of eggplant my grandfather had grown and sliced and pickled over the years. As much as he loved the stuff, and he truly did love it, his production gradually outstripped his consumption until he'd amassed the largest stock of pickled eggplant in central Connecticut. I showered as quickly as I could, but I was slightly out of sorts, and I started to shave even though I'd shaved just eight hours earlier in Oregon. All the clothes in my bag were wrinkled, so I put on an extra coat of deodorant and what I'd been wearing before, which was also wrinkled, and which my grandmother noted with an arched eyebrow, a slight smile, and two wags of a finger. My grandmother was an 82-year-old half-Armenian, half-Assyrian from the Armenian and Assyrian enclave of Turlock near Modesto in the Central Valley of California. 
She'd been a grade school teacher in San Francisco when she was young. She'd once sung on the radio in Chicago, but she'd only once sung something other than Happy Birthday when I was around. I was maybe 18. The family was at the beach. She'd waded out far enough for the waves to play with the frilly skirt that were sewn to her bathing suit, and she sang a song I didn't know and a tremulous soprano to the sea. She'd been saying since soon after I'd landed that she was worried we'd miss visiting hours. We seemed to go far out of her way to avoid the highway. In fact, she drove us right into the traffic around West Farms Mall, and she stopped 20 feet before the crosswalk every time she saw a yellow light. Well, we got there eventually. I sprang out of the car, and I suppressed the urge to help my grandmother up from her driver's seat, since trying to seem helpful seemed like starting an argument. I did, however, open the front door of the convalescent center for her, but since it was an automatic door, and since I'd only given a bow of the head as she walked in before me, nothing too ostentatious or solicitous, she accepted it without comment. That was nice of her. As we entered the lobby, the receptionist looked up and said, Good afternoon, Mrs. Morad, which my grandmother met with a nod as we turned into the wing on the left. We walked down the carpeted hall, past orderlies and pastel scrubs and ashen convalescents working at their walkers, down to the open door of room B-26, which held two chairs, an end table with a vase of tulips, and a narrow bed that held my grandfather, who'd been laid out beneath a white cotton blanket tucked under his arms with his heavy head tipped back upon two thin pillows. I sat beside him and I searched his face. I was worried about him, yes, but I was also disconcerted by the sight of his heavy-lashed and heavy-lidded eyes I didn't quite recognize without his thick glasses. He seemed to sleep simply, and I noticed a new pinkness through the dusky olive tone of his skin. I placed my hand on his wrist, his lashes rustled, and he settled back into sleep. My grandmother stood up from her chair on the other side of the bed, leaned over him, and said, Philip, Philip. She met my eyes with tenderness and said again a little louder, Philip, Philip. Then right in his ear, Philip, wake up. His eyes flew open and he turned his head slightly toward her, looking utterly lost. The back of his bald head was stitched up like a baseball. Philip, she nearly shouted at him, Ben's here to see you. He gaped at her and shook his head faintly. Philip, and then to me, get his hearing aid from the drawer. In the nightstand were two squiggly plastic pieces and a clear little case next to his glasses and a Bible. I reached across him and handed both squiggly pieces to her. She turned one on, unleashing a squeal that made her wince. Then she put it in his right ear. His hand came up slowly to adjust the fit. I reached across him and handed his glasses to her. She wiped them with a handkerchief from her purse. She reached out to take his glasses. He put them on as best he could without raising his head from the pillow, and without turning his gaze from her, he waited. She smiled encouragingly and said, Philip, look, Ben, and pointed across his chest at me. His glasses slid further askew as he turned his head to look. She tucked the left stem of the glasses behind his ear. He stared at me and smiled. Then he started to sob. 
next day, I brought with me a tape recorder I picked up at Radio Shack and a few cassettes I picked up at Sam Goody's the night before. I knew he liked classical music in the vague way that someone can like classical music. And my grandmother said he liked organs, so I got a couple of box organ fugues and a tape of Beethoven's Ninth so he could have the Ode to Joy. This was all under my developing theory that however the brain might physically recover from trauma, art was essential to the healing of the mind. I was just 24, and I had a lot of theories like that, but it would have been painfully obvious to anyone how much mental pain he was in. He just cried for maybe only the second time anyone could remember. The first was when he was 74 and his mother died. And though his crying was partly in joy to see me, I thought, I was sure it was mostly in shame. I'd never seen him ashamed before. My father was also a psychiatrist. He'd been there for the surgery six days earlier, but he'd had to return to his patients in Texas. And he explained to me now on the phone that his emotional instability could be a side effect of the original tumor, and it could be exacerbated by the physical trauma involved in digging the tumor out and replacing it with cotton or surgical sawdust or whatever. I don't actually remember exactly what he said, as my attention drifted from the phone at that moment to watch my grandmother wash with voluble exasperation a not-yet-empty water glass that I'd just set on the counter. So that second day, I set up the tape recorder on his nightstand and waited for him to wake. My grandmother was off running errands, and I tried my best to think about nothing. When he woke, I helped him put on his glasses and one of his hearing aids. Then he sunk his head back into the pillow with a sweet smile and took my hands between his large and leathery hands. After a moment, I told him I'd brought him a surprise. I took my hand from his and I pressed play. I hadn't tested the volume, and as the first strain suddenly filled the room from the tiny speaker, his hand slid to his sides. I got up to close the door, and when I turned back around, I saw his hands start to rise and tentatively measure the air, out of time with the music, but with increasing gusto, until he was clearly conducting an orchestra of one organ, his eyes wide with joy focused somewhere just beneath the ceiling tiles. He counted three, four time for a good minute after the music had shifted twice, and when he lowered his hands back to his sides, I noticed the tears again. He winced furiously behind his glasses, which only seemed to squeeze out more tears. I leaned over him, looking for some sign of what had just happened. He pointed a finger at me accusingly twice, while he tried to get his voice. This man, he said, and pointed in the direction of the music, this man made something beautiful that will last forever. And what have I made? His hand relaxed dismissively, and his fingers sank back to the sheet. I sat back down and stopped the music. Please, he said, let me hear it. And for 15 minutes, I just watched him mark the music with occasional sniffs and waves of his hands until my grandmother opened the door and she asked with the tone of exasperated good cheer, usually reserved for small children who've made a mess or maybe the gently insane, so what are you up to now? When the U.S. declared war on the Germans and the Japanese, 
my grandfather went to the local draft board and he volunteered to help them screen draftees for mental fitness. Almost immediately after he started interviewing these potential soldiers, he augmented the script he'd been given with a series of increasingly detailed questions on the subject's sexual history and predilections. After four years of interviews, he wrote a letter to International Business Machines asking for a grant of $500 so he could have the answers put on punch cards and tabulated by counting machines. They declined in a terse but polite three-line letter, and he dropped the sex questions from his interviews and soon resigned his post. This was years before Kinsey, a point that wasn't lost on my grandfather by any means, and he came to see that moment as the greatest opportunity he'd ever had to make his name known. The widest renown he'd actually known was in 1937 when, before she was banned from radio, Mae West cited him on Edgar Bergen's variety show as a doctor way up there in Connecticut who'd concluded in a recent paper that women should be encouraged to drive because they are inherently nurturing and their presence on our roadways would have a calming effect on male motorists, leading to an overall decrease in accidents. 58 years later, he was pulled over for driving the wrong way down the interstate, though the patrolman let him off the warning and escorted him back home because he still had one of the first sets of Connecticut doctor's plates. A month after that, he drove hard right into the back brick wall of his garage, almost plunging through and down 20 feet to the yard below. This was a warning sign that we'd all missed. He was at the convalescent center for another two weeks, sleeping mostly and doing some very basic occupational therapy. And while he was still given to occasional crying spells, more and more his emotional exuberance, as my grandmother put it, took the form of an exaggerated version of his normal bravado. And with his hand clenched in a shaking fist, he looked from me to my grandmother to the ceiling and vow to fight this. My grandmother would fiercely agree, yes, you will, Philip, and you're going to beat it. And each time, her determination would surprise me, and I'd say, yes, granddad, you can. And though I had almost no idea what I was talking about, and the man was 92 years old, for Christ's sake, I think I believed it, too. He was grateful, and he would take our hands and say that family is a joy from the Creator, which was surely just a figure of speech, but it was still enough to lead him back to tears. We brought him home on a Wednesday. He sat in the front seat, gazing out slightly amazed at the neighborhoods he'd passed through every day for scores of years, as if he'd never seen them from the passenger side, as if he'd never let my grandmother drive him before, which was possible, and I sat behind him, staring at the stitching on the back of his head. My grandmother stopped the car on the short gravel driveway before the garage, where it would be easier for him to get out. I helped him from the car and gave him my arm to the front door. I helped him up a small step and helped him keep his balance on the small porch until my grandmother came up with the key. All this activity was exhausting him, and as we got his coat off, he said without looking at me, Margaret, I want to go to bed. She led him shuffling down the long hall, and I followed a step behind so I could try to catch him if he stumbled, though I knew that if he stumbled, he would probably fall forward, or I'd be unable to help. The surgeons had been able to remove the main mass of the tumor fairly easily, but it was readily apparent to them that the winding arms growing off the main mass had dug too far into the brain for them to remove without causing new damage, so they had to leave them there. 
The hope now was that radiation treatments would slow the growth of the tentacles they'd left behind, or maybe even shrink them. But the treatments couldn't start until his systems had recovered enough from the trauma of the surgery. He was mostly supposed to rest up for a couple weeks, with his only exertion to be physical therapy sessions with Jack, a tall, lean, and spry 78-year-old Irishman with neatly trimmed white hair and clear eyes who would come to the house three times a week and exhort my grandfather to raise his arms straight out before him, to lower his arms, to turn at the waist both ways, and to concentrate on lifting his feet higher when he walked down the hall so he wouldn't trip on the rug. My grandfather worked hard at first, his jaw set in concentration as Jack led him through his exercises, and after Jack would leave, he would praise Jack's energetic and diligent instruction. But after a couple weeks, my grandfather's enthusiasm waned to the point where, when I'd tell him Jack had arrived for a session, he'd close his eyes, groan, and wait for Jack to come to him in his armchair. After a couple weeks more, he started having me send Jack away with the news that my grandfather wasn't feeling well today. This was true, of course. He rarely felt well, especially after the twice-weekly radiation sessions began. Those days were dominated by our trip to the hospital and several recovery naps. Graham would help him get dressed in one of his tweed suits, and we'd take the Mercedes. She sat in the back seat, and I'd drive precisely at the speed limit down old maple-lined streets where the signposts were slender five-foot obelisks of white concrete with street names painted neatly in black down their sides. Then I'd drive past the public pond to the highway and the quick merge, interchange, and the exit to the hospital. I'd drop them off at the curb and help them into the wheelchair we kept folded in the trunk. I'd dash off to park, and I'd catch up with them in the lobby before they passed the information desk, where my grandmother had volunteered for more than 20 years. She'd only stopped volunteering recently, but she never recognized anyone who worked there. Surrounded by bustling nurses and doctors striding through the crowd to committee meetings or patient consultations or whatever, my grandfather would steel himself so intently to maintain a proud bearing as I wheeled him through the lobby that he would be half spent before we even reached the elevator. His growing anticipation of the exhaustion from the treatment would exhaust him further on the way to his doctor's door. The nurses were always kind to him, and the doctor was always deferential. But when Graham and I would be called from the waiting room back to join him for the post-treatment assessment, Granddad always seemed so depleted that he looked like he'd been betrayed, and he can barely follow the conversation. But each radiation day he insisted we eat lunch in the hospital cafeteria, he said to give him strength. It's what a patient who was getting better and was proud of it might do. Graham would fix both of them plates while I settled him in at a table, and by the time I'd been through the line and returned with my food, Graham would have helped him through half his lunch. He would concentrate on his eating, sometimes simply saying, It's good, and sometimes, I can't taste a thing. Lunch would end when he'd start to slump, his face starting to freshly drain. He'd sleep in the car, awake disoriented to be led down the hall, and restlessly nap until night. Other days, when he felt up to it, he'd try to hone his mind by sitting at the kitchen table and trying to read the newspaper or play solitaire or practice for a little while writing his name and address in simple sentences. I helped him with this at first, 
encouraging him and suggesting a card to play or what a word might be, and he welcomed that at first. But the writing in the newspaper soon proved too disheartening, and he told me that Solitaire was a game he wanted to play by himself. For a while, Solitaire was his main hobby, which I found only a little depressing, until I saw that often while he was playing Solitaire upstairs, my grandmother was sitting downstairs at a table in the corner of the entertaining room, where she played Solitaire too. Well, so what else was there for me to do but go back to the dining room table, spread out my papers, and get back to work on the verse novel I'd been writing for the past year. I was going to be another Pushkin, and this was supposed to be my contemporary take on Eugene Onegin, set in an unnamed California city very much like San Francisco. I had 76 pages of this thing so far, and now, two months after admitting I was boring myself with it, I kept ringing out dead stanzas. The whole endeavor had gained a fresh air of doom courtesy of the news I'd been achingly late in getting that, a few years back, someone had already published a contemporary version of Eugene Onegin set in San Francisco that was widely and glowingly reviewed. As you might imagine, I was quite open to finding something else to do with my time, and I don't remember if it was my idea or my dad's, but since it was obvious that Grandad would not be practicing medicine again, someone needed to go through his office and remove all the pharmaceuticals and everything else that might pose some liability if someone broke in. This guy named Wheeler, who was a friend of a friend from back in Portland, happened to be staying for a month or so with his girlfriend in New Haven. He was, I thought, probably doing squat, so I called him up, and he immediately invited me down to join them for dinner. He was a tall, broad-shouldered guy with a sanguine charm and the ability to drink a lot of beer. His girlfriend worked at Yale, studying songbirds, which sounded lovely, until she explained that to properly study them, she had to kill them. She made pasta, we drank a good bit of wine, and it was great to talk about whatever we talked about and to just relax for a little. I guess that after just a week there, Wheeler was probably getting restless for some small adventure and I knew I needed some vicarious enthusiasm after marinating in the general torpor of my grandparents' house. So I explained that I was going to clear out the old meds from my grandfather's office, and did he want to come along and see if there was anything else there worth saving? It didn't sound like much in my own ears, but he latched onto it immediately, and two days later, he drove up and met me in downtown New Britain, in front of the house on Lexington Street, where my grandparents had raised my father and uncle in the upper stories. When he'd moved the family two miles away to Kensington, those upper stories went through cycles of disuse and cheap rentals, while he continued to work in his ground floor office every day from 8 to 5 with a one-hour break for lunch. He would take his lunch back home in Kensington, 
often a sandwich made of two hot dogs sliced long ways on white toast with mustard and pepper sauce. The house on Lexington Street was built in the 1880s in the Victorian style, a beautiful house with three floors, cupolas, leaded glass, and a widow's walk. This was right near downtown and not far from the Stanley Tools factory. The houses on the street were close together and of the same era, and at the end of the block was the start of a lovely park designed by Frederick Olmsted, where Jamaicans in white shirts played cricket in the afternoons. The sign at the front of the house, on a pillar at the front of the broad porch, said, Philip Morad, M.D., Psychiatrist, Neurologist. I had a heavy ring of keys, most of them ancient, thick, and round, and most were probably to forgotten locks. While I tried several of the newer-looking ones on the front door, Wheeler cupped his hands to peer through different dirty windows at the backs of curtains. I found the right key and motioned him inside to the entryway I'd known all of my life, with the secretary's office off to the right, with furnishings that were at least 30 years old, with the waiting room that might once have been a living room off to the left, and ahead, the central hall of the house. There were beautiful, magisterial stairs winding up to the right. There were ornately carved pocket doors hiding my grandfather's office to the left, and there were three doors in the back wall. One was to a small bathroom, another to a decommissioned kitchen, and the third was to a shadow office my grandfather had set up 30 years earlier for my father. It was fully furnished, and it had my father's name on a nameplate on the desk that waited for him to change his mind and move back that had waited for three decades. That office in the back waited for my father's entire professional life for him to move back from Texas to Connecticut. The air in the house was heavy with inaction, as if it had been years instead of a few months since it had last been graced with work. I pointed Wheeler up the stairs. The stairs went up a short flight and turned right to a locked door. I found the right key on the ring, and we went up to the second floor, and we went through the three small bedrooms and found each completely empty. Another locked door opened to more stairs to the third floor where, I remembered, the playroom my father and my uncle had when they were very young was at the end of the hall, looking out over the street. The cozy, narrow room had sloped ceilings where the roof line dipped, and the wood floor was painted with a shuffleboard court. Under a long window seat were small cabinets I remembered seeing just a few years before filled with ancient board games and pole toys. But the playroom was completely empty, and so was the sitting room down the hall. Wheeler followed me silently from room to room, looking in the corners in case I'd missed something. My grandfather wasn't a covetous man, but he'd always kept everything he could, and though he'd reuse things until they gave themselves up, his parsimony was richer than just simple thrift. For instance, when he and my brother and I used to fish for catfish at the Danapolis Pond, we used a fishing line that was so thin that with the wrong flick of the wrist it would slip into snarls of knots of translucent loops that tangled into a greater mass with each false touch. That seemed to happen at least three times on each trip, and each time Grandad would snip each snarl free at both ends, shove it with the others in the pocket of his pants, and tie the cut ends together to restore the line. By the time we'd get home to the Kensington house, the snarls in his pocket would have tangled together into one dense knot he'd put in a box in the first kitchen cabinet. Then later, with evident pleasure, he'd sit at the kitchen table with the mass, 
his stout fingers gently massaging the knots free to separate and straighten the lines, which he tied back together and wind on a spool for later use. There seemed to be an aesthetic dimension in this as much as any moral consideration. It gave him pleasure to see things live long lives and to be reborn. I opened the door at the end of the third-floor hall, which led us up a narrow turn of stairs to the attic. The attic is where I had assured Wheeler everything must have gone. Everything must have been moved up there. We climbed the stairs and saw that only a couple feet of the floor around the entryway was clear. The rest of the attic was waist-deep in a jumble of boxes, baskets, a small bicycle, a tipped lamp, small tables, overcoats, and scraps of wood in a blur of junk. Wheeler stepped past me and plunged into the mess, pulling out a catcher's mitt, then a handset to an old telephone. To my right was a stack of old comic books bound with twine. The first two in the stack were a Strange Adventures and the Homer's Iliad issue of Classics Illustrated, but they were both warped and smeared with mold and, like everything else I could see, falling apart. There was sunlight coming through the roof in four holes, and the air they lit in only stirred the must. I stepped through the rotting clothes that had spilled out from split cardboard boxes, and I piled two crates that looked fairly sturdy under the hatch to the roof. The latch was rusted, but I forced it open, and I pulled myself up to the widow's walk. The rail was rotting, and spindles were missing. I could see the park, and I could see a corner of the old Stanley Tools factory. I waited for Wheeler to come up and take in the view. Then I said we should check out the office. On the way back down, I locked each door behind us. down the stairs to the ground floor and we stepped down into the central hallway across from the closed pocket doors. I tried two round keys in the lock and the third round key turned. The doors slid back smoothly into the walls. His office was as I had seen it last, full but not cluttered, professional but warm. Every surface had some artifact on it, whether a grouping of old beakers and flasks or a paperweight advertising an antipsychotic everything seemed placed for display. In the center of the floor was a well-worn Persian rug. In the right side of the room was an examining table with a white paper liner down the length of its black cushion top. A steel stork-like tray on wheels held a stethoscope, a box of tongue depressors, a blood pressure cuff, a tuning fork, and two reflex hammers. Above the examining table were a glass cabinet full of medical supplies and rows of inset shelves that held hundreds of leather-bound books. Directly facing the door was his high-backed leather chair that faced out over his desk at a lower leather chair, in which thousands of people had sat over the years, thousands of people nervously adjusting their weight, growing outraged or distraught, or resting a moment with their heads in their hands. On the left wall were maps of the nervous system in Latin, and, in a row leading back to above the file cabinet in the corner, two framed diplomas, his medical license, and his class photo from 1930. His family had lived in a small Assyrian village in the mountains near Lake Ermia, 
and they grew grapes and they sold raisins each year in peace for generations until they were betrayed by the Russians who had exhorted all Assyrian men to rise up against their Turkish oppressors. And once the Assyrians finally took up arms, the Russians hastily withdrew back into Georgia and refused to bring them along. And so the Assyrians bore the focused wrath of the Turkish army, who, with their allied Kurdish militias, drove the Assyrians in a protracted and devastating retreat, killing all the Assyrians they could along the way, from their homelands in northern Persia and western Armenia to the hot lowlands of the British mandate of Mesopotamia. That was 12 years before this picture. And right about when my grandfather stood with the graduating class of the University of Rochester Medical School, staring up at the camera, the 3,000 or so Assyrians who were still at the British refugee camp at Bakuba and who either lacked the means to emigrate or still hoped for repatriation, who were still there even though their British friends had abandoned them, those shepherds, goat herds, and farmers of Rocky Hills and their wives and children were being hacked down with swords and shot in their British tents by the army of the new Iraq. I looked at Wheeler, who just put an old German text back on the shelf and picked up a plastic brain, and I wondered if he was bored. I sat behind the desk in my grandfather's chair and opened the first side drawer. I found several half-used notepads from pharmaceutical companies, a dozen or so cheap pens, Clumps of paper clips, a ledger book, a letter opener, an old pamphlet for a cruise, a roll of lifesavers and some handy wipes. And then, in the second drawer down, I found a black case that was a foot wide, six inches deep, and six inches high. I set it on the desk blotter, on its four hard rubber feet. On the side of it that faced me, I saw a kind of face. The two-inch silver clasp at the center that kept the case shut was the nose. On either side of that were two silver mounts from which hung the two ends of the black handle of the case. The handle looked like a fat five-inch smile, and the gentle ridges that had been made to greet the curves of your fingers suggested a gum line without teeth. Once unclasped, the lid gasped itself open a quarter inch. The hinges were still smooth and carried the lid back where it rested like the open lid of a chest to reveal in the leftmost fourth a deep compartment that held black leather straps and coiled wires that led to two metal discs. Filling the remaining three-fourths of the inside of the case was a raised panel with a mirrored metallic finish in which I could see myself reflected from a low angle, looking up through this text that was etched in all caps. ECT Unit Energize Instrument 30 Seconds and Check Operation Before Using Medcraft Electronic Corp. New York Model, B24. Number, 1686. Volts, 115. Cycles, 50 to 60. Watts, 125. Between where it said ECT and the word unit was the ancient symbol of the medical arts, the caduceus, a winged staff spirally wrapped by two facing serpents. But here the serpents and the staff were all severed in half by a horizontal thunderbolt. At the top middle of the panel and in the center of my reflected forehead were two raised hexagons that each held round jacks, and etched in the silver finish it said, Electrodes. To the left of my reflected face were, 
A silver filament suspended in a glass tube that you could remove and was labeled fuse. A knob that was silver except for the red dome of glass at its center that looked like a reptile's eye. A silver on-off switch stemming from the center of a black circle. And a black knob shaped like an Art Deco falcon's head. Its beak was flared and had a thin white line down its crest that met the silver finish of the machine at a black hash mark that pointed to the number 70. That 70 was positioned to the lower left, like the zero of a speedometer, and around the knob clockwise from it were black hash marks in even intervals until one that finally pointed to the number 170, the upper limit of the range there in the lower right, and beneath the knob and beneath the space between 70 and 170, it said, volts. When I flipped the on-off switch up to on, it made a satisfying click. And to the right of my reflected face were a murky gray glass eye labeled check, a tall black knob that's actually a button exactly the diameter of the pad of my index finger, and it's labeled press to treat, and it presses with a click that's delicious. And three more falcon's head knobs, the last of which turns from nothing up and over to the word treat, and further over and down to the word set. The knob has increasing resistance like a rotary phone, smoothly turning back from set, counterclockwise to treat, and back down to nothing, unless you hold against the resistance or surge back against it. This knob is labeled glissando. Hey, Wheeler, I said. He said, oh, shit. He came over for a look. He looked at it, closed it, and turned it over a few times. Let's try it, he said. What? No, look, the cords are frayed. Indeed, the wire claws were threadbare, and where the wires met the pads, split ends of copper were showing. Furthermore, I'd also found a small bottle labeled electrode jelly in the back of the drawer, and its contents were yellow and clumpy. We have to try it, he held the pads to his temples. Just turn it up to 90. I laughed, and he didn't, so I almost did it. My hand sat not far from the button, and the power cord dangled down not far from an outlet. But even us just being there felt suddenly stupid, so I took the cords back from him, and I put the apparatus back in the drawer. Let's get the meds, I said. He tried to wait me out for a minute while I stared blankly back. Then he shrugged and turned to the glass cabinet above the examining table, where rows of small boxes held white plastic bottles of Thorazine, Haldol, Lithotabs, and whatever else they had tried over the years. There were more in the bottom drawer of his desk, and the top drawer of the file cabinet was full of Clozerol, Orap, and Marsalid. Most of the bottles had been expired for years. I knew I should have given Wheeler the electroshock kit, but I wouldn't let him have it. We shoved all the drugs in a white plastic bag that we threw in a dumpster behind All-Star Muffler, three blocks away on West Main. taking naps when my grandfather did. I started going to a gym in a strip mall in downtown Kensington every morning just to get out of the house, really, and when I got back, I'd go for a run. 
I started playing solitaire when they played solitaire. Out of sheer perversity, I guess, and partly to make myself write less. For three weeks, I hadn't been able to figure out how to get the heroine of my poem, My Tatiana, a receptionist named Martha, to the party where she'd meet some lout who hits on her so stupidly that it drives her to drink enough wine out of sheer annoyance that later, back in her apartment, she calls her ex-boyfriend. She then compensates for this lapse by spontaneously deciding three days later to ask out my scruffy O'Nagan, a waiter named Anthony, who had himself flirted poorly with her the previous Tuesday at lunch when he'd shown her to her table at the bistro where he worked, the surly peasant. That's how I'd bring them together, but I'd been trying for three weeks to get her to the party, and this broken, chintzy fraud of a poem was the reason I'd given Grandad the previous summer when he asked me to come out to Connecticut to help him write his memoir, and I said I couldn't. Now he was too ashamed by his memory lapses and his weakened voice to ever let me tape him. And when he'd let me draw him out about the past, and especially when he'd start to relish it, his brain would fail him, his words would trail out, his eyes would become afraid, and he'd grow more ashamed. One radiation day, when I'd just paid for my plate in the hospital cafeteria, I saw Darby, one of the girls from the room next door in the freshman dorm 3,000 miles away and seven years before. She was amazed to see me. She was studying dentistry. She and some friends were having a barbecue that next Saturday. She said I should come. I promised to call her. I didn't call her for two weeks, and then I decided it was too late to call. I never called Wheeler again, either. One afternoon, as I read the paper at the kitchen table, my grandmother came in and asked, Where's Philip? I don't know, I said. Find him. She was livid, and I was scared. I ran around the house. I even checked downstairs, even though he hadn't been down there in weeks. Oh my God! Philip! My grandmother was standing in the driveway, screaming at him to come back inside, while he either ignored her or he couldn't hear her, and he kept trying to walk up the steep street to the top of the hill. But his balance was poor, and he kept tipping backwards until I ran up to him, and he let me help him back inside. Just six months earlier, he was still waking up at four o'clock so he could work in his garden for two hours before washing up for work. When the house was built, he dug narrow terraces into the steep slope behind it, and he never lost his footing when he'd climbed through the Swiss chard and the bush beans in a hard rain. Now he got vertigo from standing in the shower, which scared my grandmother to recriminations and tears. As he spoke less about fighting his cancer, my grandfather had become increasingly agitated that his papers, quote, weren't in order. When my grandmother would leave the room, he'd say things like, I can't leave a mess for her. She couldn't handle it. So the three of us began to meet regularly with their very, very patient lawyer. My grandfather looked forward to these appointments, asking for days before each one, when are we going to see Gralty? We'd all dress up and drive into West Hartford, and my grandmother and I would help him walk slowly but proudly into the office where he'd propose a series of worst-case scenario concerns for his hired man to assuage. For the most part, everything seemed to be in order, 
Although in our fourth meeting, the lawyer mentioned a transfer of funds in 1972 for which he wished he had some documentation. I knew it, my grandfather said, and brought his fist down into his palm for emphasis. We have to take care of this. My grandmother hissed, Philip, calm down. I said I'd take care of it. Several times over the years, my grandfather had set out to organize his papers, but he never got very far before dropping the project. During one attempt, I was relieved to hear, he'd gotten as far as moving all his business documents from the house on Lexington Street to his study at home. His study was off the long hall from the kitchen to their bedroom. The study was small, dark, and cozy, and filled with comfortable furniture with little resale value, so my brother and I had always been free to put our feet up on the couch while we watched TV. My grandfather would sit in a black recliner, and my grandmother in a low-backed armchair, and we sometimes ate dinner on the card table in the middle of the room. Though the study was given over mostly to reading, cards, or watching the TV, my grandfather used to track his finances there, and he had a black telephone that rang whenever anyone called his office on Lexington. On the wall we faced when we faced the TV, in the wood paneling the width of the wall above the TV, was a locked panel that hid a crawl space that was packed with rolled-up Persian rugs. The TV was flanked by identical closets. The one to the left was full of board games, poker chips, souvenirs from ancient road trips, a picnic basket, and boxes of books. The closet to the right, which was always locked and which I'd never seen inside, was where he'd put all his papers in his last push to organize. Since I'd arrived, I'd been trying to convince my grandmother to take a day off, to get her hair done and go for a walk, to do anything outside of the house and away from us. She'd always refused, at first by simply demurring, and when I kept pushing for an explanation and I kept saying that no one could take such stress for so long without a break, she finally asked me what people would think if something happened to him while she was out having her hair done. A couple of days after our fourth lawyer's visit, however, she told me that she had a hair appointment she'd booked the week before. As she put on her coat and wrapped a plastic shawl around her hair, I reassured her that everything would be fine, and I encouraged her to treat herself to lunch. Her car pulled out of the gravel drive, and I got the closet key from the drawer by the stove. Granddad was in the study, laying out cards for solitaire. I said I was going to start going through his papers now. He gathered up the cards and watched as I opened the closet on the right. Inside were file boxes and stacks leaning against each other. There were cardboard boxes on the bottom, compressed by plastic boxes on top, with tufts of loose paper sticking out between them. I pulled the first plastic box out to the floor where he could see it. He asked if it was a mess. I assured him it wasn't, but it was stuffed with a mishmash of papers. Annotated brokerage statements from the early 80s, an office ledger from 1939, a certificate of service from the Rotary Club, a takeout menu for Chinese. I skimmed through some things and I announced each finding so he could follow along until I noticed him shaking his head. Inexcusable, he said. I kept going, but I stopped announcing what I found. Lease forms for renters, an estimate from a chimney sweep. I put it all back in the plastic box and took out another one. My grandfather pushed himself up from his chair and walked past me. I found a file full of bank statements from 1974 and a rubber-banded roll of receipts, 
and a card from my uncle and aunt on his 75th birthday, and a program from the 1990 American Psychiatric Association convention in New York, and a creased sheaf of graph paper with three or four unlabeled things charted in different colors of ink against unlabeled axes he'd drawn in pencil. This time I dug out a cardboard box. I removed the lid and saw a bulging letter-sized envelope lying on top of a mound of who knows what. The envelope was from the stationery of the Paypeck Machine Company in Shortsville, New York. The envelope was pre-printed with three cents of postage. The ink had once been black, now it was a mottled purple. The envelope itself was tanned with age, one end was slit open, and peeking out of that end were the overlapping ends of many newspaper clippings. The envelope was postmarked in Shortsville at January 12, 7 p.m., 1944, and addressed on a typewriter to the Morad Shipping Company at 55 West Main Street, New Britain, Connecticut. I went into the living room where he was sleeping in a chair. I sat on the ottoman, and I woke him. Granddad, what's Morad Shipping? What? He leaned forward. Morad Shipping... I found something addressed to Morad Shipping. What is that? I never heard of anything like that before. He looked at me for a moment. He smiled and tapped his temple. Then he winced because he didn't know. He folded his arms and sank back in his chair. I went back to the study and sat in his recliner, the envelope on the green card table before me. The newspaper clippings were packed in tightly. The envelope's side seams split a little as I slid the stack out. The stack expanded into many more clippings than seemed possible, and the stack relaxed in my hands. Each yellowing slip had been cut out with quick scissor strokes or torn. Some were torn precisely and some in rough and jagged curves. I thumbed through the tops of the clippings and read the headlines. Bloodshed and chaos predicted in spring. Mother takes life as children sleep. Boy, 15, hangs self playing with noose. Bergstrom expected to get city birth. As I leafed through them, they began to fan out and slip from my grasp. I spread them out further across the table. Madam Chang will tour U.S. Man, 77, commits suicide in pound. Arthur Whitman fires bullet into his head. Starts Thursday. Walt Disney's Bambi. Greek violence, now civil war. Beaverwicks, the beer that clicks. New fire pumper up for discussion. Detective holds man for suicide attempt. Treasury drafts measure to cut firm's profits. Poison and knife used by suicide. 69-year-old Bond Street woman determined to die. Wife claims husband turns on gas stove. Lives of five children in home endangered, she says. Man jailed. Policeman smells gas and finds woman over gas stove and house. Ties shirt rope to top of cell. Prisoner also threatens to bang his head against wall. Allied artillery beats off Nazi's threat. Man overcome by gas revived by inhalator. Inhalator saves man whom gas overcomes. Revisits old home and ends own life. Woman enters home she recently vacated and turns on gas. They were all stories of suicides or attempted suicides or accidents that maybe weren't accidents and were really suicides, along with whatever stories they carried on their backs. All of them were from New Britain, and he'd written the date for each beneath or across the headline. 
Some were from as early as 1941, some as late as 1948. They were in no order, they were stacked in no consistent direction, they were creased in different ways, and they varied in length from little filler stories a couple column inches long to long stories that sprawled out over several columns and had spilled down two pages. Most of the two-page stories were in two separate pieces that were held together by paper clips that had pitted with rust. The surfaces of those paper clips had grown rough, and they'd sunk their rust into the pages they bound, so when I pulled the paper clips off, each one left a shadow trace of itself in the paper, a mosaic of tiny flakes the color of blood. The newsprint scraps had turned yellow and brown and grown crisp and brittle to the touch. I stopped scanning through the stories and picked one out to read. Woman cuts arm on jagged glass. Judge Harold N. Williams in police court today ordered bonds set at $50 when Mrs. Anna Wasik, 42, of 66 Hartford Avenue, failed to appear in court to answer charges of breach of the peace. Prosecutor Martin F. Stempion presented the state's case. Policeman Cyril Connolly and Rosaria Tata answered an emergency call from headquarters last night to the home of Mrs. Wasik after she had severed an artery in her left arm with the jagged pieces of a broken quart bottle, the policeman said. A tourniquet administered by Policeman Connolly prevented her from bleeding to death. Acting Sergeant William McCarthy and Policeman Raymond Hart arrived at the scene in the police ambulance, took her to New Britain General Hospital for first aid treatment, and returned her to headquarters to be booked on the breach of the peace count. Acting Sergeant McCarthy reported Mrs. Wasik attempted suicide with the broken bottle by digging the pieces of glass into her arm following an argument at home with her husband. George Mitchell, 62, of 53 Church Street, was given a continuance until tomorrow when arraigned in police court on a non-support charge on which he was arrested at 545 yesterday by policeman Fred Jones. What was this? What kind of morbid exercise was this? Half a century ago, he must have searched the paper every day, looking for what? Every morning or every afternoon? Every morning, sitting at the breakfast table as he drank his tea, he'd scan the paper? Or every afternoon, sitting at his desk in his office with the pages of the New Britain Herald spread wide in the lamplight or in the summer sun, he would scan every page of the paper, and when he saw a suicide story or a story that might be about suicide, he'd set the paper down on the breakfast table or on his desk, and he'd tear the story out? What kind of ritual was this? All these stories of death, of wanting death. Fifty years ago, he'd collected them, and he collected them for seven years. I leaned back some, and I looked at all I'd spread out on the card table. It was a ragged mass of stories with a shifting depth of field. A ragged and raw mass of humanity that I couldn't comprehend. And now, in his chair in the living room, he would soon wake without memory and sink back into restless sleep. I counted the clippings. There were 124 of them. It took me 10 years before I had the strength or the will or whatever to even put them in order.
This is From the Envelope of Suicides by Ben Morad. Sound and music by Wilson Vidiner and Courtney Sheedy. This has been made possible by a grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. If you are considering suicide, please stop for a moment and look at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Think about it. At that site, you can find resources and how to contact someone who can help you talk things out. That's suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Or you can call them at 1-800-273-TALK. For more about this project, including notes on this episode, please visit enveloppofsuicides.com and follow at Ben Morad. I'm Stephanie Barr. Thank you.